Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to see so many familiar faces. My PhD, uh, I'm reminded that um, Michael Emerson is one of my readers, and I need uh, feeling a little shame right now because <laughs> I'm way behind on that. But, uh, but before I begin, I, I do want to wish uh, and, and add to my uh, congratulations and, and celebrations of all the mothers out there. My wife is uh, the mother of a two-month-old, and so we're really grateful for our baby daughter. And then also add to my condolences and care for those who Mother's Day is a difficult reminder uh, and a challenging day. And so um, grateful to be here and to be able to celebrate with you uh, through both uh, the joys and the grief and the sorrow. Uh, I also want to say uh, thanks for the great uh, book display in the lobby to celebrate API Heritage Month. Brielle said, hey, make sure you say something about that. And so I'm doing that, Brielle. Uh, and and uh, happy API Heritage and History Month to those of you uh, who are celebrating, yes. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that I am the first of the speakers in the Grounded and Rooted series. I didn't know that until I just heard it. And uh, I think that it's, it's going to be very fitting, um, especially as we are navigating uh, questions about what it means to be grounded in uh, the Word of God today, and to be grounded in truth, especially in a time where discernment is lacking. Our, our scripture reading is going to come from our, our scripture reading comes from Colossians two one to eight. Uh, Colossians two one to eight. Uh, I was given two passages. That and then the entire chapter of John 15. So know that that's all about abiding in Jesus. Uh, but I'm going to focus primarily on Colossians 2. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And, and, and you can uh, listen along, open your Bibles, close your eyes, whatever would help you absorb and soak in the words that I share from the scriptures. Colossians 2 verses 1 to 8. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for, those, for all who have not met me personally. My, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our passage in Colossians 2 begins with words that have been ringing deeply in my soul, especially as I've been wrestling with this passage. Paul writes, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. 
To contend for the church means to struggle, to agonize, fight, and even exert energy for the sake of the church. This is what Paul says he's doing here in this passage. As he considered what was going on among believers at Colossae and Laodicea, he began to contend for them. And if you look at the thrust of Paul's letter to Colossae and the churches throughout the New Testament, you see over and over that Paul contends for the church's faithfulness, the church's wholeness, flourishing witness, and unity. Something we so desperately need today. And this passage resonated with me because in many ways this feels like a big part of the work I'm attempting to do with the Asian American Christian Collaborative, to contend for the church. So when I was assigned for this passage, I was grateful for the way it ministered to me. Now, to be clear, I'm not equating my efforts or our efforts with the efforts of the Apostle Paul. That would be very concerning. However, I do find that his heart and his spirit for the church is one that resonated deeply with me. In all of my efforts, I find that the great concern that I have is for the witness of the church to bear the image of the true and living Christ and for Christian communities and churches to demonstrate what it means to live out faith when Jesus enters into the picture. And whether you know me or not, I hope that you know that this church, New Community Covenant Church, is a church that I frequently keep in mind in doing the work that I do for a variety of reasons. From having the privilege of knowing some of you and, be, and you, many of you being near and dear to my wife and I, to, to having several former students from Wheaton uh, be active members within this church, like Brielle and Sarah and uh, Michael, who I was going to ask to be a part of an illustration later, but he showed up after service started, so I couldn't. A little bit of shame. <laughs> Just kidding. I know, I know how faithfully he serves and how reliable he is, so he can take it. To this church being actually a very formative part of one of my best friend's lives. Uh, I know many of you know Brian Song. He's, he, is, he is shaped significantly through his time here. To this church also being a, occupying, uh, occupying a very unique role within the city of Chicago as a gospel-centered, Bible-loving, justice-oriented, reconciliation-committed, multi-ethnic church. The exact type of church that I believe the devil would love to mess with. I think of you and a handful of other churches throughout the country as I do the work that I do. And I often ask myself, would what I do ultimately serve them and glorify God whether they're aware of it or not? Which is why today I consider it such a privilege to be here and to be with all of you to share God's word with you. But as we keep reading, we're able to catch a glimpse of the end to which Paul contends for the church. In verses 2 to 8, Paul writes, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
Then verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. When, when Paul was writing this letter, there was a heresy running through the church in Colossae. It was a syncretistic heresy or a heresy that emerged in and through the fusion of not only different but contradictory beliefs one being Christian and the other not, blended and fused into something else, essentially leading to a different faith altogether. It was the blending of a false belief with the truth of Christ. Now, Paul writes this letter to plead with the church to seek and garner understanding, to grow in awareness and to pursue a faith that is true, really in order to know the true and living Christ, which we see in the passage, the mystery of God, and the one in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which verse 3. But clearly, we see that something is hindering those in Colossae and Laodicea from this knowledge and understanding, as twice in these eight verses, we see exhortations and warnings that we ought not to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, verse 4, or taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, verse 8. Paul warned those in Colossae about this because discernment was scarce, which led to this blending of what was from God and what is not from God, which hindered people from experiencing the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Paul warned them at least twice in these eight verses because there was a great need for discernment around what was good, true, and beautiful. But the theme of discernment and truth doesn't only emerge here. We see it all throughout Scripture. Discerning the truth we see is critical throughout all of scriptures. In fact, if you turn to First Chronicles, which I'm not asking you to do, if you look tucked into chapter 12, there's a beautiful little passage that we often overlook. In First Chronicles 12.32, which most people don't even read First Chronicles, we, we, we learn that all those who joined David's army at Hebron, including the sons of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. Now, at first glance, this verse doesn't seem all that significant. It does, especially doesn't seem significant if you look at it and how it's presented within the context that it's presented in. All it seems like is a list or a record of those who showed up to fight against Saul and his army alongside David. But if you look carefully, you see something very special. This verse tells us about the sons of Issachar who were distinguished among the ranks of David because they demonstrated something that set them apart from the rest of those that showed up. Verse 32 tells us that they were distinguished because they understood the times and knew what course of action to take. What made them notable was their ability to discern the times that they were in and give keen insight into what should be done. They could rightly define reality and then suggest the right course of action. This is perhaps why Max Dupree is famously known for saying that the first task of a leader is to define reality. They demonstrated wisdom, insight, and prudence in both assessing what was actually taking place around them and also calling for the right set of activities. They saw through and above the chaos and the confusion and knew what to do. 
In fact, the ability to discern and understand the times and not be taken captive by false ideas and empty philosophies or hollow philosophies is so important that you see Jesus rebuking the crowd because of their inability to do so. In Luke 12, verses 54 to 56, we read, Jesus was critical of his generation for their inability to discern the times. He said to, to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Uh, while in First Chronicles, we see how those who rightly discerned the times were commended. In Luke, we see how those who couldn't or didn't discern the times were criticized by Jesus. And much like we saw, as well as in the letter to the church in Colossae and Laodicea, we too are facing a crisis around truth and discernment, which we see in the larger Christian discourse throughout society, as well as within local communities and congregations. And it's tearing the church apart. We live in an age where there's more information and knowledge available to us than ever before. I could probably ask ChatGPT to write a sermon that would be better than the one I, I wrote for this day. And yet, despite all the information and knowledge that's available to us, our ability to discern what is fact from fiction seems to be severely lacking. It's so bad that people can't actually tell the difference between real news and fake news, real facts and alternative facts. To discern the times, we need to discern what is true. And to discern what is true, we need to be committed to the truth. We cannot discern the times unless we can discern the truth. And we struggle to discern the truth because we are not committed to it. Who's familiar with the name Maria Ressa? Anyone know that name? A few of you. Yeah, I see a little hand go up here and there. Well, for those of you who don't know who she is, Maria Ressa is the founder and CEO of a company called Rappler, which is a digital media company based in the Philippines that's driven by uncompromising journalism. She was actually awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021 for her efforts to safeguard freedom of expression and, and was honored for exposing the abuses of power and the growing authoritarianism under then-President Rodrigo Duarte. Uh, many of her talks and interviews, she shares about the story of the rise of authoritarianism in the Philippines and how it's related to the events of January 6th here in the U.S. There was a social media clip from the Late Show that went viral on Twitter as she shared about the work that she did. And, and trust me, I get the irony of the fact that I am citing a clip that I saw on social media to tell you about the dangers of false information being spread on social media. She said that 100% of Filipinos who are on the internet are on Facebook. And the events of 2016 in the Philippines sparked her to say that the same thing was going to happen in the U.S., which for her were displayed in the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. She said, and listen carefully, you saw the same methodology between the two events, the rise of authoritarianism in the Philippines in January 6th. First, bottom-up social media. Lies. Facts become a lie. Or a lie said a million times 
becomes a fact. Then it comes top down from the government, from the president himself. Same methodology. And then you have no idea where truth lies. And then in our case, the Philippines, what we saw is that all of a sudden we saw society splintering. How do we react to this? Then she said three sentences. I have said the same thing since 2016. She's been sounding the alarm. And pay attention to what she said. If you don't have facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, we have no shared reality. We can't solve any problems, and we have no democracy. That's what social media has done. It has come in and used free speech to stifle free speech. Is this not a piercing description of the state that we are in? Basically, she's saying that people are saying whatever they want in order to push their own selfish agenda, regardless of whether it's fact or fiction and whether it destroys us or not. How many of you have seen this, whether it's online or in person? How many of you had to deal with someone, whether it's a family member or a loved one or a friend who went down some random rabbit trail on social media or on YouTube based on partial truths and, made, and turned them into whole belief systems? We have a discernment crisis. But how do we get out of it? Well, as I've been sharing, we need to commit to the priority of truth. Remember what Maria Ressa is saying. She's speaking as a journalist, and she said, without a commitment to facts, you can't have truth, because journalists can't report on anything that isn't factual. And without truth, there is no trust. And without these three, there's no shared reality. And without a shared reality, you cannot solve the problem set before us. Basically, she tells us that we need a commitment to facts and truth. Because as a journalist, you report on the facts, and the facts help you get to the truth of what you're reporting on. While there are efforts to distort the facts or even hide them under Duarte's presidency, the work that she and others did in uncovering factual evidence shed light on the truth of his authoritarian and dangerous rule. And we know this is consistent with the scriptures, because we see in John 8, 32, that the truth will set us free. You see, the truth is liberating. It clears things up and almost purifies us when it's out there. You know what it's like when something is bearing heavily on your conscience, and then you confess it by bringing it into light. That's the liberating effect of truth. Whether it's something that you did that you shouldn't have done, or something that you didn't do that you should have done, there's something powerful about telling the truth even if it means you have to go through a difficult period of restoration and repair. Now for Christians, this is important to remember because we believe that the truth is, is founded and grounded and rooted upon the one who is true, and we believe that truth emerges from God himself. And because of God, we come to know all truth, and whether our commitment to the truth is compromised, and, and, and when our commitment to the truth is compromised, community becomes compromised and converts into multiple forms of tribalism. When those in power are committed to partial truths, it leads towards a fracturing community that leads to tribalism. When those without power are committed to a partial truth, it leads to a divisive community that leads to tribalism. And no matter what, and no matter whether we have power or not, when our commitment is to tribe over truth, we find ourselves com compromising our faith in Jesus Christ 
and our faith in Jesus to be compromised. So today, as always, we need a commitment to truth over tribe. But not only is a commitment to the truth an adherence to a positive truth, it's also a commitment to correcting what is false and untrue. You see, when we commit to the truth, we're committing to discerning what is true, which means that we, we work to getting to the truth, even, though, even if many are led to a distorted view of things. Take critical race theory, for example. Big CRT. If you study critical race theory, you would know at least a few things. It's a multidisciplinary discipline that emerged out of the legal field. It emerged as people, the second thing is it emerged as people began to ask questions interrogating the impact of the civil rights movement in the 60s and whether the gains were what people claimed them to be. Third, what most people are calling critical race theory in the public square today, the popular version of critical race theory, isn't actually critical race theory. Fourth, CRT is not being taught in elementary schools, and, it's, and, and to conflate the teachings on MLK or Ruby Bridges as CRT is intellectually dishonest at best and wicked at least, at most. And five, CRT is a discipline that is so expansive and dynamic, there are actually significant disagreements within the discipline, including at some fundamental level. So critical race theorists are constantly disagreeing with each other. So it's like, welcome to the club. Just don't call something that's not critical race theory, critical race theory. But I'm not here to talk about critical race theory. I'm more interested in seeing how CRT, or at least the label, is being used to promote a particular agenda that isn't grounded in the truth of what CRT is in order to divide the country and to promote tribalism. And sadly, how many Christians are using it to divide the church? CRT has somehow become somewhat of a dog whistle to distract people from racial justice efforts and to actually engaging with the issues of race and racism. If you've been following closely, what you will find is that all it took was a few people to label what you will, uh, to label the efforts to promote racial justice as critical race theory, which then was tied to Marxism, which most, pe most people, including and especially maybe Christians, don't really understand, to discredit the efforts of critical race theory. And one of the people who pop most popularized CRT as a dog whistle or a modern red scare tweeted out, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into a public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions, we will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand carrot category. He continued, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Are you seeing that happen? We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Basically, their efforts focused on turning critical race theory into a catch-all phrase that could be used to discredit anything that they disagreed with. And what you see all throughout the country, from school boards to legislatures, from elder boards to churches, is a misuse and misappropriation of the label CRT. Some members of the House even introduced a bill to declare CRT as Marxist and a threat to the American public, though it never got anywhere. 
It's become a label, like communist was M for, like communist was for MLK Jr., even though he denounced communism, that many, including many Christians, have widely weaponized and labeled and, and embraced as a label to discredit what they disagree with and what makes them uncomfortable. I still remember the first time I was called a critical race theorist. Out of my study of scripture, my personal experience as a racialized minority, my, both, my study of both the civil rights uh, history and, and Asian American history, and mentorship by Christians who had remained committed to racial justice and remained close to the poor, it was impossible to ignore the significance of race in the consideration of faithful Christian living and witness. Basically, I came to the conclusion that racism was a sin and that racism was wide-reaching to the point that I needed to explore the ways in which we have normalized racism as a church and society to the point that we've become so blind to it. It was out of my own experience, the patterns that I kept seeing and reading about and both historically throughout history and, and of course, seeing in the present age. And in my reading of the scriptures that I came to an understanding that racism is a sin that many Christians have long ignored and and even suppressed. But what was surprising was the more I addressed the sin of racism, for example, the more pushback I got. And at some point, someone called me a critical race theorist on Twitter. And I remember when I heard that, all I asked myself was, what the heck is critical race theory? Never heard about it. It's like five or six years ago when almost no one was talking about critical race theory. Now CRT has become some sort of boogeyman that's going to destroy society. And unfortunately, many Christians have not only bought into the propaganda, but they're the ones that are promoting it. And so this is why I started reading CRT, to understand what it was. And you know what I found? That CRT, though I don't agree with everything, better articulated the sin of racism than the conservative white evangelical complex that does everything in their power to, to suppress these histories, to neglect the impact and hinder racial justice efforts and only allow for the minimalist gains that they can tolerate. What you see in the whole CRT label and now the woke label or the liberal label or the Marxist label, you go on and on, and all the other labels that go before it is a pattern that reveals that whenever someone calls for racial justice and that, though, and that, that, that call for racial justice picks up steam, the backlash grows even stronger. Progress around racial justice becomes deterred and even moves backwards. We've seen this over and over again. It's this racial retrenchment where racial progress leads to racial violence against racialized minorities. You saw this after slavery was abolished and black communities began to thrive, only to find them getting massacred and burned down as they established a presence, like in Tulsa in 1921. You saw it with the Chinese who after building the railroad and sacrificing many of their lives and limbs to fulfill manifest destiny in the US, they were not only left out of a photo at Promontory Point, which celebrated the completion of the connection of the railroads from the east to the west, but federal laws were then shortly passed right after to exclude them from citizenship. And when they couldn't be expelled, they were massacred like we saw in Rock Springs in 1985. There was an entire effort to sterilize Chicanas in, in California between the 1920s to the 1930s, and estimates are around 20,000 Latinas were sterilized because they weren't racially fit to breed, simply because they were Latina, and the list goes on. 
Now, as much as meaning and language changes, the whole CRT mania as we are seeing it is, a, is essentially the misappropriation of a discipline, at least, at least, and the bearing of false witness that people are, that, that are leading, that is leading people astray from a commitment to discerning truth at most. And sadly, dog whistle politics is remarkably effective at activating an uninformed base. And unfortunately, it happens all the time. And because of this pattern, you now have many well-intentioned people going around denouncing CRT without knowing what it is or distorting it in a manner that doesn't resonate with CRT scholars and practitioners to the point that I've heard critical race theorists who aren't Christian, and let me be clear that there are many critical race theorists that are Christian and faithfully Christian, to make the comment, aren't Christians supposed to be about the truth? If they are, then why do, they, why do so many of them lie about CRT and call something that has nothing to do with CRT, CRT? The bearing of false witness. But this doesn't just happen in the broader society. It happens within our local communities as well. I can't tell you how many churches were torn apart because people refused to factor in the facts when they were addressing issues of race and politics. Families were torn apart. Maybe some of your families were torn apart. Institutions were turned upside down. Churches were devastated. But churches aren't just being torn apart due to contradictory facts around major ideological and societal issues. Churches are also torn torn apart because the same thing they're seeing, because they're replicating the same thing that they're seeing out in society, being discipled by this weird, divisive propaganda movement working off of partial facts, both perpetuated by Christians and non-Christians on issues impacting the church. Facts don't seem to matter. Everything and everyone is now on trial. There's little grace and little mercy for one another. There's almost no trust within communities. Why? Because there's no commitment to what is true, and there's no commitment to the community. People take a part of the picture and make it the whole picture, or part of the story and make it the whole story, or one perspective and make it the entire perspective. Tribes form. Misinformation is spread. People malign each other. People dig their heels in. Walls go up. Then there's a standstill. No movement towards each other, which leads to no forward movement as a church. Then all of a sudden, disagreements turn into villainization, and much of it is because there's simply no coming together around the facts because everyone operates different facts and conflates those facts to the entire truth. The church enters into turmoil. Community is wounded. Then there's no healing, especially because the conflict never gets Resolve. Much of this is because people choose to focus on the limited things that they've committed and concluded to with limited information and knowledge. There's no commitment to the truth in this scenario, only a, com- a commitment to incomplete conclusions drawn by skewed perceptions, and where there is no truth, there is no trust, which only exacerbates things. And it just devastates communities, doesn't it? Now, clearly, we need to become a people and be a people who understand the times and know the right things to do. We, we need a better way. So what do we do? Thank you. It's called provisio, looking ahead 
hospitality at its best. Well, we need two things. As Christians, we have to be committed to the truth. But as Christians, we are also made for community, and so we need to be committed to the community or to relationship. Without both of these things, there is no secure grounding. And when it comes to our commitment to the truth, what we see is that though Christians are committed to the truth, the truth is that too many of us are driven by partial truths, like I just said. But as one Yiddish proverb goes, a half-truth is a whole lie. What this means is that the truth we need to commit to is the whole truth, not half-truths or partial truths. We need a commitment to a comprehensive truth, and we need to commit to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And because we're talking about what it means to be rooted and grounded in God, we, we have to always remember that the primary truth must be a commitment to the truth of God's word. This is the thing that is our, uh, our north star. And it's a commitment to God's word that's interpreted properly and applied thoroughly. This is why I love the series that you're in. You're in a series about being grounded and rooted. In a society where discernment has been divorced from what is true, we need to be anchored in something that endures, which we know Scripture is. We'll never be a community of God if we aren't a community of truth. And we'll never be a community of truth unless we are committed to a shared truth that can be tested and challenged. And for the Christian, our commitment must be tethered to and consistent with the word of God passed down from generation to generation. It's out of this commitment that we can actually do two things. Spread further truth or spread more truth and stop the spread of falsehoods. In any community, falsehoods will spread faster and further than the truth will. There was a study done by an MIT professor who, uh, who tried to compare how fast the truth spreads versus lies on Twitter. He and his team found that falsities spread six times faster than the truth did in reaching the first 1,500 people. This is the problem with conspiracy theories. They spread so rapidly because there's just enough truth or a partial truth or a sliver of truth for it to be plausible. But because conspiracy theories create certainty around speculation that can't be tested, it's too slippery to address. This is why commitment to the truth, including addressing falsehoods within a community, is so critical. There needs to be a commitment to getting to the facts. One Christian politician told me, while bad information will spread faster than good information, we just can't let the bad information go unchecked and uncontested. Those who do the hard work of correcting falsehoods end up helping our democracy. I think this is so true of Christian community as well. But here's what it means. It means that in community, when you hear something that's off, you work to stop the spread and encourage those who are speaking falsehoods to consider what they're doing and the impact that they're having. It also means that you guard yourself against spreading rumors that aren't true or half-baked to, to not spread false gossip. Falsehoods can destroy communities, especially as they spread further and faster than the truth itself. But despite this fact, somehow we can take comfort because we know in the end that the truth will prevail. 
Now, a commitment to truth must also be coupled with a commitment to the community. You can have truth without a commitment to the community, and all it turns is into, it, it turns into a, a trial or into an argument or a debate. When you're committed to both the truth and to the community, something magical happens. Because communities are only as strong as the truth that binds them together, but communities are also only as strong as the commitments that members of the community make to one another. Nothing is more unsettling in a relationship than not knowing if someone is truly committed to you or knowing how you stand with someone. It's unnerving if you never know whether someone's going to walk away at the first disagreement or the major conflict. This is also true of communities more broadly and why making and keeping promises is so critical in in creating a sense of community and stability and security in relationships. This is why I love the themes of covenant, which is so significant all throughout the scripture. The, The security that comes from knowing God and that he covenants with you and knowing that that covenant is an unbreakable promise changes everything about our ability to find security in our standing with him. And how it fleshes out within covenantal communities are through baptism and membership. Right? These are such co- commitments within the church community. And to be baptized is not only a public declaration of faith, but a commitment to a faith community. And membership, especially as people move around all the time now, is a commitment or a covenant to a particular type of community and a particular type of place. You see, covenants create security and stability in relationships. And what we see is a God who joyfully covenants with us and covers us with full and blessed assurance that we are his and he is ours. So what happens when you put these things together? What happens when you couple a commitment to the truth with a commitment to community. Several things happen. First of all, you find that dealing with hard stuff becomes easier. When you know that there's a common commitment to one another and a common commitment to getting to the truth, when conflict and disagreement arises, you're able to work together and work through it with greater efficacy. Why? Because you know that the other person is going to stick through it through thick and thin and that you're both committed to the same thing. Second, it also means that you're able to hold each other accountable. A common commitment to the truth means that you have shared standards by which expectations are created. But the common commitment to relationship means that you'll know that even when things get hard, that they'll still be there on the other end after you hang up the phone. Third, because of these things, when you, be, you come to discern a better truth, Truth is best discerned in community. And I think that truth is best discerned in diverse communities because of how quick, how, how much tribalism has captivated our minds. But what we know is, is that in addition to the study of God's word in its historical context and considering its original intent, as the word of God is living and active, we know that its applications are often informed by those who are reading it. And there's no better way to learn how to interpret and apply the scriptures into a particular context than in and through community. The community checks us because Lord knows when we read something, we can go off onto all these random trails and end up in a cult or creating a cult. But God's word is best discerned together in community. This is what we see in Acts 17. The Bereans got together and they, they heard the word preached and they discerned together and they, they, they considered things together and then they came to deeper faith as a result of it. 
But this commitment must, is also this, this ability to discern and this commitment is also uh, is true around just reality itself. Because so often these days, because of the complexities of the world we live in, we, live, we need multiple eyes to help us see what we are struggling to see and make sure that we aren't seeing things incorrectly. Few things can erode a community more than people operating with false assumptions, ideas, and beliefs that are not grounded in truth. And true community cannot be built on the collective wisdom on, of individual ignorance. It needs to be built on the collective wisdom of collective discernment. Uh, I'm going to close with this to see if I can kind of bring it all together. I'm going to have our minister, Tim White, come up, and then uh, my friend who's visiting for the first time, Justin, come up. I was going to ask you, Michael, but I couldn't find you. <laughs> if this fails, uh, you can blame Armida, who inspired me this morning. And um, I hope we have liability insurance. <laughs> Put these blindfolds on and face each other. So what we've kind of learned this morning, I hope that you've learned if you were falling asleep, is that as a community, we need to commit to truth and we need to commit to each other. We need to commit to the community itself. And the way to do that is to share and stand upon common truths as well as lean into each other. And so I'm going to ask you to put your palms together and I can help you because you're blindfolded. All right. Actually, I'm going to move you back a little bit just so that you don't fall off, Tim. Okay. Okay. Now, don't let your palms separate. And I'm going to ask you, every time I, uh, every time I ask you to, to just take a step back, just take one step back, maybe like a foot. All right, so you can do that right now. Okay. Now what you see here is that as I keep asking them to take another step back, you can take another step back, is that they're working off of common assumptions and common truths. One, they're working off of the assumption and the truth that the ground is not going to fall beneath them, that the ground is stable. The second thing that they're assuming is that that they can hold each other up, that they have enough strength to hold each other up, which I hope they do. <laughs> I don't know. And we could see, we could just go on forever if you want. And as they keep taking steps back, you could take another step back, take a small step back. The, the steps are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> They're gonna have to lean into each other more and more and rely on each other. That's what community needs. We need to be grounded on the same truth, that the, fall, the ground is not going to fall out from beneath us, that they're able to hold each other up. You guys can take a step back. You guys, can, yeah, you guys are good. <laughs> and that they can hold each other up. <laughs> Thank you. you can. I was getting concerned. But you cannot have community unless you're operating on the same commitment to truth, with the same commitments to understand and to seek understanding. And you can't have community without the ability to rely on each other, to lean on each other. And as you continue to deepen 
what new community becomes and develop what new community becomes as, as you seek faithfulness in Christ. Pursue discernment by leaning into each other instead of moving away from each other. Communities too quickly fall apart these days. And it's going to be really important that you press in instead of move away or you lean in instead of leaning away. Grounded upon a commitment to truth and a commitment to one another. Because what would have happened if one of them dropped their hands or one of them just stepped away is that the other would have gotten hurt. It's because they were committed to each other and to staying together and to leaning into each other that they were able to stay secure. So I pray that this community becomes a community that is known for its discernment, to know the times and to understand the times and know the right thing to do. To be a community that doesn't get held up and captive by false ideas or hollow and empty philosophies. And as you do, I pray that you lean into each other and you grow together into all that God calls you to be. Amen? Let's pray.